This is The Rounds Table. Hello, Rounds Table listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. My name is Freddie Frost. I'm a research fellow in Liverpool, Northwest United Kingdom, and it is my pleasure to have a good friend of mine, Alex Picard, who is a trainee in acute and emergency medicine in London, further south in the UK. <clears throat> good to have you along, Alex. Thanks, Freddie. Very kind of you to invite me to come and speak on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to it. So let's get straight into it then. So the article I'm going to talk about today was published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine last month. The first authors were Muru Ganandan and Azapadi from Perth, Australia. And it was a study called the Ample 2 study, which was aggressive versus symptomatic drainage of malignant pleural effusions via indwelling pleural catheters. So Freddie... What is the bottom line of this article that you're talking about today? So, Alex, in this randomized controlled trial of daily drainage of malignant pleural effusions versus a more symptomatic guided drainage of malignant pleural effusions, there was no difference in breathlessness overall, but daily drainage did improve pleuridesis rates, and there was also some signal towards an improved overall quality of life as well. And Freddie, if you just tell us a little bit more about why you chose the article and why this is important. I found this article very interesting myself from my experience of seeing these patients in the emergency department. I just wondered why this paper jumped out to you. Yeah, sure. So last time I was on the podcast, I mentioned how interventional studies in palliative lung cancer settings don't come along that often. Almost as soon as that had gone out, another one came along. So I thought it was only fair that we uh, gave that the publicity that deserved as well. And sort of similar to last time, it's a well-run intervention randomized study in a answering an important clinical question in a difficult to reach population. So I find it an interesting study and uh, that's why yeah, I thought it'd be good to discuss it. Great. So moving on from that, Freddie, do you think you can just take us through the methods of this study for us? Yeah, sure. So they designed a multinational randomized control trial that was mainly run across Australia, New Zealand and China. Uh, the patients that they were interested in were adults with malignant pleural fusion. They didn't mind which primary you had, but you just had to have a life expectancy greater than three months. There were a number of exclusions to the study. Most of these were related to sort of exclusions of having an indwelling pleural catheter itself, for example, bleeding, loculations within the effusion, or a previous lobectomy or pneumonectomy. Okay. And if you just add a little bit more detail, Freddie, what was the primary question of the study? Yeah. So the study investigators wanted to know whether in people with whom you've put an indwelling pleural catheter in, does aggressive fluid drainage, i.e. drainage every day, improve patients' outcomes, particularly their patient-reported outcomes, quality of life, compared to a more relaxed drainage approach, such as letting the patient drain it whenever they feel like it. So to do that, they designed this unblinded randomized control trial and patients were randomized to either drain their effusion daily or simply when they felt like it. And this was from day one as soon as their drain had gone in. So this was either patients or their carers or if uh, feasible sort of community services draining the uh, effusion daily or in the other arm draining it as and when their symptoms dictated. Now, if they were in the other arm, so where the symptomatic guided drainage group, they did have to drain it every 14 days as a minimum to stop the drain from blocking, essentially. Now, the study investigators collected a number of bits of data from the patients themselves. So the patients completed daily visual analogue breathlessness scores. That's where they jot down on a score of 0 to 100 
what their breathlessness levels are like. There was some similar quality of life scores, and they also uh, measured for pleurodesis and uh, safety outcomes, such as from infection and any other adverse events related to the drain itself. Okay. And just in terms of the primary outcome definition, Freddie, what, what was that? Yeah, so the investigators were, as we mentioned, investigating a palliative population. And so they went for a outcome that they thought directly mattered to the patients themselves. And so they went for a primary outcome that was related to the breathlessness across the whole 60 days of the follow-up period. So essentially, all the visual analog scores across the 60 days, the primary outcome was the mean of those scores in each group. Okay. And in terms of the main findings of the study, what did they find? So they randomized 87 patients of whom 82 had sufficient data available to include in the intention to treat analysis. Just to give you a bit of an idea about the sort of patient group that we're dealing with here, uh, mesothelioma and lung primary accounted for about three quarters of cases. About 10% in each arm had had pleurodesis attempts before, and performance status was 0 to 1 in just over two thirds of patients. So I think what we're dealing with here is a patient group that was quite early on in their diagnostic process. I think these indwelling pleural catheters were being inserted sort of, uh, relatively early before people had multiple pleurodesis attempts or before um, morbidity from their lung cancer or mesothelioma had really kicked in. So the main findings were that after 60 days of the respective approaches, there was no significant difference in the breathlessness scores. There was, however, significant differences in some of the secondary outcomes, namely pleurodesis, whereby in the aggressive daily drainage group, 37% of patients achieved pleurodesis, whereas only 11% in the symptomatic guided group achieved pleurodesis, uh, and that gave them a hazard ratio of 3.3 that was statistically significant. The investigators didn't find any difference in terms of hospitalizations between the groups, nor indeed in overall survival. There was a few other outcomes that it looked at as well, and these were sort of pre-specified outcomes. Now, although there was no difference in the breathlessness score between the two groups, there was a signal in favour of overall quality of life. Now, they did a quality of life score called the EQ5D5L, which I haven't heard of before, but I think it's quite well validated in oncology. And a particular question, I did find a benefit in the aggressive drainage group. So... Sounds like a very interesting study, Freddie, and one that's definitely caught my eye. Do you think you could talk us through some other interesting points from the study itself and tell us a bit more about the design and why this was, what one is quite a difficult study to carry out and how it seems like they've achieved quite a lot, really? Yeah, so obviously, as we've mentioned before and mentioned last time, this is a quite difficult patient group to perform studies in. We're dealing with palliative diagnoses at the end of life, so it's quite a pragmatic design in that regards, and I guess they needed that really. Obviously, the primary outcome wasn't met. There was no significant difference in shortness of breath between the groups. However, there was some signals in favour of the aggressive drainage approach. Uh, so I think what's particularly interesting about these sorts of studies is that they do raise interesting questions about what the primary outcome should be in some of these palliative studies particularly when you're not looking at improving uh, survival and you are focused on quality of life and breathlessness, it can be really difficult to tease out some of the differences there. I think this study has gone about things in a nice way and has uh, tried to answer an important clinical question uh, and we can take quite a lot away from it. 
Okay, great. So just in terms of the limitations of the study that we haven't come on to so far, could you talk us through those, Fred? Yeah, so I mean, it's an unblinded study. So the patients and carers would have known whether or not they were in the daily drainage group or the more relaxed group. There is some evidence that giving patients power to sort of decide their own sort of treatment regimens, particularly in the palliative setting, can alleviate symptoms. So the fact that it's unblinded does lead it open to some bias there. Also, as we discussed before, it's a relatively fit population and this might have been the case that investigators had to select people who would have been fit enough or functioning well enough to do daily drainage in the first place. That might not always be possible in a more frail or sicker population or where sort of healthcare coverage or local services can't support daily drainage. So what I found interesting as well, Freddie, is of how the local services are able to deal with such a trial and also just to be able to carry out these drainages because we all know obviously how sometimes how tricky it is uh, and although it's different, tricky managing chest drains and things like that, that they were able to implement a service by which they were able to even carry this out. I think they've done very well. Yeah, so daily drainage, I think, is not something that we use much in the UK. I think in the US, it might be, in North America, might be more common, but it does seem like a big burden on the patients and their carers, particularly if they have to do it themselves rather than uh, those community services coming in. Now, the investigators did actually go into this a little bit and doing some quick maths from the data they've given us, it does look like when you're just for deaths and pleurodesis, so people sort of dropping out, not completing the 60 days worth of drainage. The daily drainage group did actually achieve 93% of their drainages, which is pretty good. I think I probably would have suspected the number to be a little bit lower from that. I guess importantly as well, all those extra times they access the drains and handle the drains compared to the uh, symptomatic only group, even though they were obviously handling their drains, well, there was no increased risk of infection or any other adverse events associated with increased drain usage. So I think that's important to say as well. So very interesting, Freddie. Um, can you just take us through, in summary, the main learning points of this article that we can take away? Yeah, Alex. So I think for me, the main learning points are that um, malignant pleurofusion still needs to be managed in an individual way. If you are thinking about pleurodesis uh, and that being your target and you have a patient, a carer or a care system that's able to uh, do an aggressive approach, then you can be reassured that that approach is safe, it's effective and you can achieve higher rates of pleurodesis doing it. If you're perhaps dealing with somebody else, somebody who's had a few pleurodesis attempts already, perhaps they've been drained a few times before and have then gone to having an indwelling pleural catheter, then I think this study also helps you and reassures you that you can improve breathlessness and in a safe way by letting the patient take control and drain it as they see fit. Okay, fantastic. Just one last point. It was interesting, Freddie, that although that the primary outcome was not met, that there was no difference in shortness of breath, although there was a increase in quality of life, which is interesting that these patients, despite still remaining breathless, they still had an increase in the quality of life. So do you know where that where you think that comes from? No, it's difficult to pick apart really. I think it's also you would worry perhaps that also draining your effusion every day rather than at least every two weeks might adversely impact your quality of life. In fact, it seems to be the opposite. So difficult to, difficult to pick apart that. I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. I think taken together, you can just be reassured that the, the aggressive approach is safe and can be effective as well. Okay. First of all, thanks for inviting me on the podcast, Freddie.
So, just moving on, the trial that I've picked, or the paper that I've picked for us to go through today is the tranexamic acid for hyperacute primary intracerebral hemorrhage, TICH2, an international randomized placebo-controlled trial, phase 3 superiority trial. Bit of a mouthful. It was published in The Lancet in May 2018, and there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter, on various podcasts and forums and things. So I thought it might be an interesting paper for us to discuss. Yeah, certainly. Definitely. Transamic acid is a flavor of the month, isn't it? There seems to have been quite a lot of research about it recently, perhaps making a bit of a comeback. Do you want to tell us a bit about the sort of background to this study and maybe some of those other studies that are sort of being published recently as well? Absolutely. So I think obviously, as we all know, as clinicians, that stroke is a huge leading cause of death in our population, certainly in Europe and North America. Primary intracerebral hemorrhage itself makes up around 20% of all stroke diagnoses, but it also leads to around 50% of the mortality of patients with stroke. So it's got that disproportionate mix there. So if there's anything that we can do early on in these patients to try and improve those figures, that would be very good. In terms of tranexamic acid itself, there are two main trials that have sort of stole the headlines over the past few years. The first one is the CRASH-2 trial from 2010. That was a trial that looked at around 20,000 trauma patients. And then following that trial, there was another landmark study, the WOMAN trial, which again also looked at at tranexamic acid, particularly in postpartum hemorrhage. And that also had around 20,000 patients in it as well. The main takeaway points from those trials were that both trials showed tranexamic acid reduced death due to bleeding by a third if the tranexamic acid was given within three hours. So obviously, you know, these studies have got a huge weight behind them and, uh, and, have, and have, have led to sort of uh, changes in, you know, in our protocols and how we manage these patients, both trauma patients and those in postpartum hemorrhage. Okay, yeah. So those studies have certainly made huge impact, as you said, to clinical practice. So let's get down to the nuts and bolts of this one and then see whether TITCH2 is similar. Do you want to take us through a bit about uh, the design of the study and what they did? Absolutely, yeah. So in terms of the methods, so this was a very well-organized trial with uh, with good funding. Um, it was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, parallel group, randomized control trial. It was carried out over 124 hospital sites in 12 countries, although one thing to note is just that the 80% of the patients came from UK-based hospitals in total. So the primary outcome was, can tranexamic acid improve outcomes in primary intracranial hemorrhage? There were 2,325 participants, and the way in which they did that, so they had a, a trial protocol by which patients were given one gram of tranexamic acid as a bolus IV immediately once they'd been recruited to the study, followed by a second eight-hour infusion of a gram of tranexamic acid. This was all done for patients that presented to hospital within eight hours of their symptoms. It had central randomization that was done in real time via an online website, and it was stratified by country and age, and it was also minimized on key prognostic factors. And in summary, the primary outcome was the functional status at day 90 of these patients. And this was measured by something called the modified ranking scale. Okay, and I don't think I've heard of that scale. Do you want to talk a bit about that and how they sort of measured that? 
Absolutely, yeah. So the modified ranking scale, Freddie, is a scale that they often use in trials to do with stroke and neurodisability. And it's a scale that runs from naught to six. And uh, in this particular study, it were the way in which they, they measured it was that they the patients were followed up with either a telephone consultation or a questionnaire. The scale itself, as I said, runs from naught to six. Naught being no disability, six being death, and four being moderately severely disabled okay all right and is that a scale used sort of routinely as a decent primary outcome absolutely yeah it's used in a majority of trials looking at stroke and neurodisability Okay, great. So what sort of population are we talking about here? So I think the first thing to note is that what is a primary intracerebral hemorrhage? And so essentially, this is patients who have bleeding from a diseased vessel within the brain parenchyma. This is often due to hypertension. And it was just important to note that in this trial, patients that were excluded included those on anticoagulants, those that had received thrombolysis, those that had been victims of trauma and those that had known structural abnormalities in the brain. And the primary intracerebral hemorrhage does not include a subarachnoid hemorrhage. It does not include AV malformations, infection or trauma, as I said before. So you just need to remember that when taking these results into account. Okay. All right. Sure. So we know what the patient population looks like. We know what the primary outcomes are and we know pretty much what they're doing so why don't you tell us a bit about the results so in summary really freddie the primary outcome was that there was no statistically significant difference in the odds of death or dependence at three months whether you got tranexamic acid or placebo this primary outcome the the ordinal odds ratio was 0.88 with a p-value of 0.11 and this for a shift in the modified ranking scale so essentially what they were trying to assess was was there a significant shift on the actual ranking scale itself from a bad outcome which they classed as ranking scale three to six to a good outcome of zero to three okay fine so two negative studies today uh, what about secondary outcomes? Do they look at anything else there, find anything interesting there at all? Absolutely. So one thing that was very interesting was that there was actually an, a reduction in early death. There was also a reduction in hematoma expansion. And there was also a reduction in serious adverse outcomes. So again, I guess we've got sort of broadly similar to the AMPLE2 study as well. No significant difference in the primary outcome that they've selected but changes or favoring the treatment arm in the secondary outcomes now obviously we have to be sort of slightly cautious about interpreting that but have the authors all tried to interpret that at all or have you got any sort of thoughts on it so i think what the analyses that i've read fred has basically said that the trial lacked power because this the ordinal odds ratio was not as good as what they had initially proposed in the power calculation so maybe again this is a big maybe but Possibly, if they had recruited more patients, they may have been able to demonstrate a statistically significant improvement in their outcomes. So yeah, it's very interesting, Fred. So I think the the authors themselves in their discussion have been very open about this. They have essentially written that they feel that their one explanation for the findings was that the anticipated treatment effects that they were trying to achieve, so the odds ratio of 0.79, was too large 
and that they basically needed a bigger trial to be able to detect for it to be statistically significant. And especially if you look at CRASH-2 and the woman trial, each one had sort of you know 20,000 patients, whereas this was sort of 2,200, and whether they were just looking for too big an effect for the size of that trial. Okay. Yeah, no, that's an important point to make. Okay, so let's move on. What uh, Any other interesting points or observations you wanted to make about this study? So I think the main thing that I took away from it and picked up on was this, the eight-hour window that they chose. And I'm not quite sure when they designed the trial why they chose eight hours. And I think, obviously, this trial has been going on for a long time. And subsequently, since this trial was ongoing, we've now got a lot more evidence from CRASH-2 and from the woman trial you know, to say that actually that it is so important that this that tranexamic acid is given early. So in this study, the medium time to stroke onset of giving the drug was 3.6 hours. And that brings me on to another point I wanted to raise was that there was a meta-analysis done of CRASH-2 in the woman trial that, uh, so first of all, that they showed that tranexamic acid reduced the risk of death by a third if given within three hours, but that from further sub-analysis, they also showed that if given immediately, there was an improved survival rate of around 70%. And actually, for every 15 minutes that the drug was delayed, that that initial 70% benefit reduced by 10%. So the fact that our patients in this TICH2 trial, the median time of giving the drug was 3.6 hours, and some people receiving their drug up to eight hours, whether we were we're losing some of the benefits of the drug, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, that's important to note as well. And I guess, like, like you said, that's where CRASH-2 and women and the women study have uh, sort of pushed on uh, research in the last few years. Yeah, really interesting. And further, to, and sorry, Freddie, just further as well, I think we have to be very careful about looking at CRASH-2 in the women trial and comparing it to this, because obviously the disease process is very different. And it would be very interesting to see the, the, the results of the CRASH-3 trial, which is actually looking specifically at intracerebral hemorrhage in trauma and that is a very big large study as well i think which which they're aiming for sort of the same size as the crash two trials at twenty thousand plus patients so that will be very interesting to look at their results okay great so let's just finish up then by uh why don't you give us your main learning point and how you think this study is going to affect your practice yes i think in summary it was a very robust very well designed study i think my main learning point was obviously that there was no statistically significant difference in outcomes at nine months between those receiving tranexamic acid in the first eight hours in primary intracerebral hemorrhage but i wonder whether some of these patients were getting you know, getting this drug too late and whether that if we had looked at just the patients who were receiving it much more early on, that whether we would have had statistically significant results. I think in terms of practice, I don't think this trial is going to change practice and protocols at the moment, but I think it's definitely, I think, early consideration of tranexamic acid in, in primary intracerebral hemorrhage with a case-by-case discussion between the ED team, the stroke team, the neurosurgeons would be healthy in these patients. And I think that if they if it is going to be given, I think it needs to be, it's very clear from all these trials that it needs to be given as early as possible. So it should be, you know, so if they, people are going to give it, they should give it early. The other thing which I didn't mention before was that there was evidence to show that there was a reduction in the hematoma size from some of these patients being given tranexamic acid and that this could have a potential benefit from those, you know, going on to have surgery or aggressive surgery with hematoma expansion. 
Great. So thanks very much for that, Alex. Just to wrap up the podcast, then we're going to do the traditional good stuff segment. We have an interesting piece to talk about today. It is a play that was actually at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival up in Scotland recently, and it's called uh, Capacia, Love Takes His Breath Away. There is an excellent review of the play in Lancet Respiratory Medicine in the most recent issue. And basically, this play is about cystic fibrosis, and it sort of explores the difficulties that are unique to people with cystic fibrosis. And that, for example, they actually have very little shared experience of their disease, as they're often isolated from other people with the disease to prevent cross-infection. Now, what that has meant is that uh, things like online chat rooms are common, and uh, this theme, as well as uh, themes about sort of death and loss of friends, is explored in the play. Alex, have you been up to the Fringe Festival this year? Uh, unfortunately, I didn't I didn't make it up there, Freddie. I think roads are constraints and whatnot uh, stopped me. But I, I've, I've heard it's a fantastic thing to go to. A lot of fun it's had, I think. And uh, it's something that's definitely on my list of things to do. But, but yeah, how about you, Freddie? Uh, no, I wasn't there, but maybe we can get up there together next year. So Possibly in the future. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Uh, so thanks very much. That's, uh, that's it from... Uh, Alex Picard and me, Freddie Frost. Uh, We look forward to doing this again sometime. Thank you, Alex. Fantastic. Thank you, Freddie. The Roundstable is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airways. You never know what's in store until you tune in.